Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is the Josh Hammer Show. It was the Bolsheviks going back to the Russian Revolution who first came up with the idea of no-fault divorce. This is the idea that a man and a wife should be able to part ways to separate without anyone having to demonstrate that the other is at fault, without having to provide evidence that the other party to that marital contract erred in some grievous way. Ultimately, no-fault divorce was adopted universally in the 1960s and the decades that followed. Why do I say that? Because no-fault divorce has an explicitly communist pedigree. It has an explicitly communist provenance. It has been the goal of the Marxists, the Bolshevik, going back 150-plus years, going back arguably as far as Marx and Engel himself, themselves, to break up the nuclear family, to ultimately undermine the integrity of your children, and really, if they actually had their druthers, to then take those children and to swallow them up under the confines of the state to eradicate the very notion of private parenting, of mother and father actually raising their children according to their own values. We see that play out in real time with Governor Gavin Newsom's veto of a California law that would effectively take children away from parents who deny their children's gender identity, things like that. Many other countries as nearby as Canada have enacted similar legislation. Well, fortunately, for those of us who are engaged in fights like this, who see the enemy for who he and she is, we have Liz Wheeler, the host of the Liz Wheeler Show and a former guest on this very show with a brand new book sounding the alarm on this very topic. So Liz Wheeler's book that is out just this week from Regnery is Hide Your Children, Exposing the Marxists Behind the Attack on America's Kids. Let me tell you, I have picked this thing up. I've started to thumb my way through it. It is a thick, well-researched document. This is not a drive-by book that was put up just for sales purposes. I mean, God willing, Liz will get some great sales out of this book. But this is a serious addition to the conservative literary genre right now. And in this book, repeatedly, Liz sounds the alarm about what the left is doing to your children, how they are wielding power to try to groom your children, to try to sexualize your children. We see it time and time again, guys. We see what happened with the Walt Disney Company, which, by the way, the Walt Disney Company actually just last week announced that they were going to cool it, that they were going to cool it and stop peddling cultural Marxist propaganda in their product lines and in their stores and amusement parks. Well, it turns out, actually... That if you reject live and let live neutrality, actually bruise up your enemies a little bit and use a little government power, as the governor of Florida did to the Walt Disney Company, it turns out that the opposition 
Well, we see what happens with Disney. They are going to curl back up into their fetal position and beg for mercy. I have a sneaking suspicion, based on what I have read thus far of Liz Wheeler's new book, that she might be sounding some similar themes here in our interview, and we really are excited for this. So once again, the book is Hide Your Children, Exposing the Marxists Behind the Attack on America's Kids, out now from Regnery. The author is Liz Wheeler, host of The Liz Wheeler Show. We're going to be joined by her just after this break. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Josh Hammer Show. Joining us now is the host of the Liz Wheeler Show and the author of the brand new book available everywhere books are sold. That is Hide Your Children, Exposing the Marxist Behind the Attack on America's Kids. The author is none other than the host of the Liz Wheeler Show herself. That is Liz Wheeler coming back to the Josh Hammer Show for a repeat appearance. Liz, you're a dear friend. Congratulations on this tremendous book that I'm physically holding in my hand right now. Thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about it. Oh, thank you, Josh. I really appreciate it. It's delightful to be back. So this is quite a book. I mean, first of all, I mean, my first impression upon getting it in the mail is it's physically thick and you have dozens and dozens, uh, dozens of of footnotes and citations. I I mean, this is this is not necessarily for I I mean, to be clear, it is it is definitely for everyone out there. I think the lay reader can pick it up easily. But this is a scholarly tome. I mean, I mean, this is a real piece of uh, of conservative nonfiction that you have added to the discourse here. I, I had high expectations because I think very highly of you, and based on my reading of it thus far, it has only surpassed my expectations. Why don't you just talk us through a little bit about how the idea for this particular book came about? I mean, there's been a number of, of, of works along these rough lines. Chris Rufo has a book out recently on some similar lines uh, on kind of the woke cultural revolution, but you're focusing really on our, on our children. So why don't you just walk us through how this idea came about? Yeah, and thank you for the compliment. Even your description is very flattering of my book. I included so many footnotes and references because most of the book was based on research. It wasn't just my opinion or my political punditry. And I knew that people on our side are curious about the source documents. And I also, some of the things that I found are just so difficult to believe, even though they're true, that I wanted the left to be able to see the citation because they're, of course, going to try to dismiss it as just being right wing fear mongering. And I'm like, nope, you guys said it or did it right here. So (laughs) all the references are in there for everybody to see so that you guys can be deputized to use all this information um, yourself. I'm never going to be one of those conservatives that's protective or possessive about information that I public that I publish. I want everybody to be speaking it from the rooftop. So go nuts when you get this book. Um, the book started as kind of a question. We, we see in our country, especially during COVID, this deliberate and relentless assault on our nation's children. It's not really a question of whether it's happening. We can see it happening before our very eyes. Even parents who looked over their kids' shoulders on Zoom school saw critical race theory and trans ideology and 
1619 Project and moral relativism poured into the minds of their kids, and parents didn't like that. And I wondered, is this new? Is this a concerted effort? Where is this coming from? Who's behind it? Why now? So I started digging into this question, and I quickly realized that it is, in fact, not new at all. It is escalating, which is why I think parents noticed it. But it's not new. The left has actually been um, going after our institutions or trying to re-engineer our society for a very long time. This is decades and decades and decades in the making. Um, and sadly, the left has actually been very successful in this effort. We can look to any of these cultural institutions, kind of the foundational cultural institutions, and we can see that they've been co-opted by the left, right? We can see the media has been captured by the left, the education system. Sadly, a lot of religious institutions have been captured by the left. The law has been captured by the left, and now the left has their sights set on the nuclear family, in particular children. And it struck me that Republicans who always claim to want to fight the culture wars have really sat very complacently as the left has infiltrated and subverted and plotted to overthrow these institutions. We have done nothing effectively to stop them. So the first half of the book, what I do is I name the names of the people, the Marxists and the organizations behind the capture of the institutions and the attack on our children, because I think it's very important that we establish the reality of the political enemy that we face so that we can fight back effectively against them so that we can actually win for once. And then the second half of my book, I propose a solution. And I will tell you, Josh, it's a solution different than what the Republican Party offers for how, in practicality, we take back these institutions in order to protect our kids. What is your basic prescription then? Well, the basic prescription is first a little philosophical, but we can see the practical manifestations of it if we, I mean, turn on cable news and hear any Republican talking. And it's essentially the idea that you and I sitting here, we think of the United States as a free country. But what does that actually mean? What does it mean to be a free country? What does freedom mean? What is liberty? And there are two two definitions among Republicans of what liberty is. There is the definition that says, well, liberty is the end unto itself. And the contrasting view is that liberty is the means to something greater. For the last 50 or 60 years, the Republican Party has embraced the former definition that liberty is an end into and of itself. And I'm, I'm grappling with this question as I'm writing the book. And, you know, this has been a question that I've been grappling with for several years now because my viewpoint on this personally has also changed. <laughs> Liz, I, I, sorry I to cut you off, but I feel, I feel like you and I have grappled with this in real time over the past few years, right? <laughs> We have. You've been a big part of my intellectual transformation from what I would describe as my more libertarian roots. This is why I, I, I speak all of this critique of the Republican Party without animosity to the everyday citizens who embrace a more libertarian definition of liberty, because I also was a libertarian. I think we all were when we were young. I, it sounds great. I would love to still be one, but I can't because it doesn't work. And the reason that it doesn't work is because if liberty is an end to itself, if liberty is defined as the most absolute freedom that a civil society can tolerate, then David French would be correct when he says that drag queen story hour is a blessing of liberty. He'd be correct that there would have to be some kind of inherent morality to these grown men dressed as sexualized versions of women gyrating in front of children just because they had the freedom to do that. There would have to be some some good in that. But I reject that. It's, it's grotesque. It's evil, which means that that cannot be the definition of liberty if we are to have a flourishing society. That the definition of liberty must be that liberty is the means to something greater. 
So I challenge conservatives in my book to grapple with this question the way that I have been for the last couple of years, the way you and I have talked so much about, to ask ourselves, well, what is that something greater? What do we want for our society? What is the meaning of human flourishing? And how do we use the just authority of government to enact that in our lives and in our families? And I challenge conservatives to view government not as necessarily uh, an inherently evil thing. Conservatives, I think, fall prey to the idea that a limited government means never using government, that government should be as small as possible. And that's not really what a limited government means. Limited government means it is constrained or limited by enumerated powers and by accountability to the people. So I challenge conservatives to not only think about what is the definition of liberty, what what is this something greater, but then to use the just authority of government to help order our society towards it. I'm grinning ear to ear because I don't want to overstate it, but we probably had some friendly bickering on some of this maybe three or four years ago or so. But I mean, you're really kind of singing my language here. I mean, I, as soon as I got your book, I flipped to the back cover. I saw that our mutual friend, Yoram Hazoni, who's the chairman of the M.N. Burke Foundation, that he had glowing praise for you, concluding his blurb of your book with the quote, in the process, Wheeler emerges as a compelling and articulate new star of the Burkean right. And I'm wondering if you could kind of then just take some of what you said about kind of the failures of this live and let live style, blessings of liberty style, ultra libertarianism. Let's kind of put some some teeth on on those bones and flesh it out a little bit here. So what does it mean, practically speaking, for the actual subject of your book, which is securing the blessings of liberty properly understood to our children, to our progeny, which ultimately, by the way, Liz, is the admirable goal of your book, it was also, it's, it's worth pointing out, the goal of the draftsman of the U.S. Constitution itself, it literally says that in the preamble of the Constitution when it actually explicitly says, secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. So I, I think admirably, your goal in this book happens to be the exact same goal as the people who met in Philadelphia in 1787 in the Constitutional Convention, specifically in the Committee on Style, drafting the very words of that preamble. So Let's go from 1787 now to the year 2023. You published this book. Let's flesh that out a little bit. How are we actually going to use government power to secure those blessings of liberty to our progeny, our posterity, to our children? Well, that's the thing, Josh. I'm glad you brought this up because what I'm proposing is not a new idea. Of course, it's not a new idea. What I'm proposing is that we reclaim our constitutional legacy because our constitutional legacy is to an ordered liberty. Our constitutional legacy is not to libertarianism. In fact, the drafters of our constitution specifically rejected a definition of liberty that was essentially equal to just license to do whatever you wanted. They recognized that that would bring about the downfall of a country, the same as left-wing authoritarianism. So instead of going to, to 2023, let's stop quickly in uh, 1852. In 1852, we didn't have, up until that point, we didn't have compulsory public education in our country. It's actually a relatively new thing that we have. And Massachusetts was the first state that enacted compulsory public education. And the reason that they did was not to teach children reading, writing, and arithmetic. The reason that they did, that they, that they made public education mandatory is because at the time there was a large influx of immigrants coming into our country, particularly Catholic immigrants. And these Protestant politicians who were in charge of Massachusetts wanted these immigrant children to be indoctrinated 
with American values so that these immigrant children would be loyal first to America versus the country of their birth. And secondly, these Protestant politicians wanted children to be indoctrinated with Protestant values because of the age-old battle between Protestantism and Catholicism. And when I'm, when I'm reading this in the course of researching my book, I realized that we often accuse the left of using the public school system as indoctrination, and it's bad because of what the left is indoctrinating into our children. But actually, our public school system was intended to be an indoctrination center. It was intended to indoctrinate children because indoctrination itself is kind of a nebulous, morally neutral concept. Whether it's a good thing or a bad thing depends on what is being indoctrinated. And since the since public education became compulsory, be, since it was intended to be used to indoctrinate children in American values and Judeo-Christian values, Republicans have lost sight of this. We, we withdrew from being the ones to instill our values in children through this institution, and we surrendered it to the left, who were only too happy to, to hijack this institution and use it to indoctrinate children with Marxist values. So a couple of the things that we can do is we can understand that there's really no such thing as neutrality in many of these institutions and in our culture. There's never going to be this equal playing field where everyone can bring a different definition to a different word and a different value and a different set of morals. That's never going to be the case. That's a utopian fantasy, if anything, but it doesn't work. It's either going to be the left is instilling their beliefs and their ideologies in children and in our culture, or it's going to be the right instilling our values and our principles in children and in our culture. And Republicans need to understand that both culturally and legislatively, it is our duty to include morality in legislation. And I know that this is a very hot button thing to say among conservatives because conservatives are so worried about violating the separation of church and state but we have to properly understand what the separation of church and state even means. It means government doesn't have a right to force you to go to church or to prohibit you from going to church. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything about, it doesn't prohibit in any way, shape or form us from acknowledging natural law, which is God's divine law on earth, or as many people know it, human reason, objective truth. It doesn't prohibit us at all from including that in our cultural norms and in our legislation, our statutes, our judicial rulings. And in fact, Josh, if we neglect to include this type of morality in our governing, then we're going to be exactly where we are today in this cultural insanity. You know, Liz, I'm really glad you brought up the separation of church and state, which is one of, if not the single most misunderstood elements of all of modern U.S. constitutional law. I mean, anyone who can flip open the U.S. Constitution and goes to the First Amendment sees that the word separation is not actually in there. Rather, the Establishment Clause very clearly reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. This actually, this goes back to a 233-word letter, a pithy letter that Thomas Jefferson sent in 1802 to Baptists in Danbury, Connecticut. And at that time, it was in the context of trying to get the better of John Adams and the Federalist Party up in New England and had this kind of whole convoluted political context. It, it was It's not there. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, not, not to overstate an oft-stated point, was not even at the Constitutional Convention. And yet, the rhetoric of separationism, so to speak, which didn't ultimately get adopted into the U.S. Supreme Court's First Amendment jurisprudence until 1947 in an obscure case called Ever on which I and a couple others have a forthcoming essay coming out soon, hopefully. It wasn't until then that this idea of separation of church and state really sunk in. So anyway, you've really touched one of my nerves there. 
I hope that we can unpack this on the other side of a very quick commercial break. So once again, we're joined here by Liz Wheeler. She's author of the brand new and very compelling book, Hide Your Children, Exposing the Marxists Behind the Attack on America's Kids. We'll be right back with Liz Wheeler. Stay with us. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The Josh Hammer Show. We're back here with Liz Wheeler, author of the compelling and voluminous new book, Hide Your Children. Liz, why don't we pick up right where we left off? The reason that I kind of personally glom on to the separation of church and state debate is that it really kind of cuts to the core of what you were just saying is that neutrality is not an option. You really just have to choose here. And we've seen large swaths of the intellectual right, of of the online right, people who who are writing, tweeting, hosting shows. I think many of us have started to kind of come to this conclusion in real time together. The question that I have is kind of a practical one, frankly, which is, do you think that what you are saying, what I am saying, is this making a difference at the actual level of governance yet? And if not, how can we help to make it become more readily applicable at the government level? I do think it's beginning to make a difference because honestly, every time that I talk about this topic with someone, um, this is the point about my book that people are most fascinated with. They do want to know who the Marxists are behind this assault. They want to know the names and the organizations. They're interested in that, but they're very interested in what the Republican Party has done wrong and why the Republican Party has deviated so much from our constitutional legacy of how to protect our country and what the definition of liberty is. So I think, I mean, it sounds, it sounds cliche, but the more people know, the better they are equipped to um, pressure their elected representatives to govern in this way. And this is, this is what I always tell people, Josh. This is not a new idea. It is our constitutional legacy. And we already have laws on the book that follow this exact philosophy. For example, you can look at laws as large as homicide. Well, what's this based on? It's not based on some nebulous idea of human rights. Like, what even is a human right if there's not natural law? This is based on the Judeo-Christian value that men are created in the image and likeness of God, that we're different than animals, that we don't have the right to deprive someone else of this, this breath of life that God put in them. All of our laws against assault, against rape, against even private property, they're based on the objective reality that that. God is the author of justice. And again, that's philosophical, but we have laws that are only based on moral hazards, not based on physical danger. Cause you might, you might hear a response from someone that says, okay, but like homicide, you're violating someone else's individual right. That's why the government has, has a law against it. I don't think that that's the reason why, but I understand their argument, but take, for example, the law that prohibits children from walking on the floor of a casino. Why is why do we have that law? Is that a physical danger for the child? 
No, it's not. It's not a physical danger for a child to walk on the floor of a casino. We have simply acknowledged as a society that it is a moral hazard. Our government is empowered. It is part of their just authority to enact certain laws that are based only on um, morality in order to help order our society. So you can see the practical the practical applications of this in Florida, where Governor Ron DeSantis didn't just ban critical race theory, but he also mandated that in public schools, children will be taught not just the definition of communism, but the destructive effects of communism. That is a moral commentary on communism. You can't separate. You can't separate communism from either declaring it to be a moral good or declaring it to be a moral bad. And so we see parents realizing that, oh, we can use the power of government to ban transgender surgeries, we can also use government to ban critical race theory from schools and queer theory from schools. And we should be using the power of government to prohibit any private company or even a public university for that matter, from receiving a dime of taxpayer money in the form of a contract or an endowment or a student loan. Um, if they have a DEI office or if they participate in ESG, any of these, any of these ideological things like DEI and ESG that are based in Marxist ideology. We have the just authority to use government to prevent these things. We can't just create a cultural ruckus about it. As far as like the, the specific tools of governmental power to try to get us away from this conception of what you define in, in your chapter on what is liberty as, quote, absolute liberty. So try in terms of trying to get us away from this conception of, quote, unquote, absolute liberty, trying to get away from this idea that you have an absolute free, individual free right, a natural right, a moral right, a statutory, whatever, that you have a right to do a wrong, which obviously is in, is in direct odds with the classical definition of you, never, you don't have a right to do a wrong. I, th- I believe that was Aquinas, if, if I'm not mistaken, who, who said that. The DEI critical race theory stuff is obviously fertile terrain, and we've seen a lot of that. I, I, I happen to agree with you. Obviously, I'm a Floridian. I'm a big fan of what our governor has done as far as trying to set a vision of what is and what is not just of using the wielding of power within the confines of the rule of law to try to establish what is right, what is wrong, what is just, what is unjust. Looking across the country, what other examples and what other current kind of culture war touchstones do you see that are ripe for this style of governance? I assume that the transgender debate is obviously one of those areas. I'm curious if you see any other areas ripe for this sort of wielding of government power as well. Yeah, let me give you an example at the federal level, because I think states obviously have a little bit more leverage to do things like this. So they pretty have they have broad authority to do what they want, in a sense, when it comes to this type of morality, especially in the public school system. But at the federal level, there's this there was this interesting debate earlier this year. It it ended in March um, over whether or not TikTok, the app, should be banned. Senator Josh Hawley had introduced a bill that would have banned TikTok outright because he defined TikTok as a national security risk, and he defined it as a psychological operation against our children that was sponsored by the Chinese Communist Party. Now, he, of course, was right on both of those accounts. TikTok is owned by a company called ByteDance, who, just by nature of being a Chinese company, is tied to the Chinese Communist Party. And what TikTok does is it collects user data, not like email addresses and birth dates and stuff that Gen Z doesn't care if big tech overlords collect. They draw a pattern of who you are based on how long you stay on a certain video or what you read on other apps. They use your phone to make a digital fingerprint of you so that they can identify your vulnerabilities. 
For example, if you're a 12 year old and you're going through puberty and you're feeling some confusion about your gender identity and your body, TikTok is able to identify that by the movements on your phone. And so they serve you TikTok videos about gender identity, encouraging you to transition, planting this insidious ideology into your mind to confuse you further. It is certainly a psychological op by the Chinese. The Chinese don't want the United States to be the American superpower. They want to unseat us. They don't particularly want a hot war with us. They want to do this from, they want to subvert us from within. This is the perfect way to do it. Josh Hawley is entirely correct that we, that we have the just authority of the government to ban TikTok. But then, of course, you had Senator Rand Paul, who's an outspoken libertarian, who ended this effort. He was the one that blocked this effort because he claimed that he wasn't defending TikTok necessarily, but he was claiming that we would be doing the same thing that the Chinese Communist Party does when the Chinese Communist Party stifles speech if we were to ban TikTok because we didn't like the speech that existed on TikTok. And I love Rand Paul. I love his wife. I've known them for a long time. I fundamentally disagree with that political philosophy and that analysis because we're not doing the same thing as the Chinese Communist Party because it's not censorship of free speech. It is helping enact a moral order in our country by protecting our children from forces that would harm them. And we absolutely have um, the just power of the government behind us on our side that would allow us to do this. So that would be a perfect example. Our nation would be much better off if we banned TikTok. This is what all the kids spend all their time on and it rewires their brains. Yet a lot of Republicans, and when I say Republicans, I do mean members of the Republican Party, not necessarily the conservative electorate at large. Members of the Republican Party who misunderstand what liberty is are afraid to use the government to stop the Chinese from subverting us and our kids. Look, it's very well said. I mean, if I just sum this up just briefly, I mean, you're touching, again, so many similar themes that I and many others have been touching on as well over the past few years here. In the post-war era, from my perspective, social and economic deregulation combined, what we might call neoliberalism on the global stage combined with this libertarian live and let live attitude on the domestic front has Yes, has it has it tangibly benefited many? Sure. I mean, like the statistics about those who have risen out of poverty since 1980 in this post Reagan Thatcher era. I mean, any, you know, any economist at the American Enterprise Institute would sure be happy to cite that off the top of his head. But there have been real tangible downsides to this. I mean, drug overdoses in this country to, to just take one statistic have absolutely skyrocketed from between five and 6,000 in 1992 at the end of the George H.W. Bush presidency to almost 110,000 last year, if I'm not mistaken. So just, I mean, just an astronomical increase, any number of other data points as well, obviously the situation at the southern border. And this neoliberal just free movement of goods, labor, capital, all that, it seems to me like economic and social deregulation taken to this extreme the moment is now for not deregulation, but for consolidation, for, for solidarity. I mean, that kind of really is the essence of national conservatism, common good conservatism, whatever whatever description that you want to use. And certainly that seems to me to be what you're getting at here. So let's kind of take it home here, Liz. The book ultimately really is about kind of securing the blessings of liberty for our children. And we haven't really talked about the, the gender ideology much. I know that you're very passionate about this issue, as of course am I. As far as the most direct threats to our children's future prosperity, health, well-being, we've touched on critical race theory, DEI. 
we, I want, so gender ideology, of course, comes to mind there. Are there any other threats that kind of leap to the front of your mind when it comes to undermining the foundation for our children and our children's children? I would imagine that just secularism, frankly, is probably up there for you as well, right? It is. And I think that you can't untangle critical race theory from queer theory or the transgender ideology because it was no coincidence that they came in right one on top of the other. You know, critical race theory told white children that they're racist because they're white, black children, that they're oppressed. And the result of that is they, the critical race theory created this identity crisis in all these young people. They started feeling this self-loathing because they were told they were evil and there was no way they could redeem themselves. They started resenting their parents because their parents made them this way. And in this identity crisis, then you have queer theory swoop in with using the transgender ideology, telling these children that, yes, you were created bad because you're white, but you can throw off that identity as an oppressor if you put on the identity of a marginalized transgender person, for example, or non-binary or LGBTQIA. And this offers children this like wonderfully, it sounds wonderful, at least this wonderful antidote to become good when they had previously been told they were bad. It offers them a solution or so they think to this identity crisis that critical race theory has created. But what happens in the process is these children are radically alienated from their parents. They have to reject their identity, who their parents made them to be. And they instead have to essentially pledge fealty to this this leftist ideology. They are forever secured, at least as activists for leftist causes, if not outright revolutionaries for a Marxist ideology. And when you see how this is planted, I mean, both critical race theory and queer theory are neo-Marxist ideologies. I discuss it in more depth in the book just to trace it back to exactly who wrote both of them, where it, how, how, they were, how they were contrived and how they're being applied today. To see the result of this is just, it's one of the most dangerous things that are, is facing our children right now. And while we have secured some victories in the past two or three years against critical race theory and trans ideology, it's about to make a resurgence because these leftists understand that our victories are based in the fact that after decades and decades of having our heads buried in the sand, we now have our eyes open and we now understand the reality of this political enemy that we face. So the Marxists understand that their time to impose this Marxism on our country, they've been seeding it in our institutions for decades, and the moment is now. If they don't impose it on us now, it will never happen. So their attacks against us, they're not going to abate based on our victories. They're only going to escalate. Liz, we're running out of time here, unfortunately, but let's get you out of here with this question, which is, to every establishment Republican out there, every Republican who subscribes to this outmoded live and let live mentality, this neutrality mentality that you and I both know is a total loser, a total loser politically, culturally, morally, existentially, frankly, if you want to go there, what would be your quick advice or your quick kind of parting words if you were talking face to face with a with a Republican politician, a congressman, senator, whoever, who was spouting those sorts of platitudes? What would what would you say to that person? I would say you need to reject libertarianism. You need to grapple with the question, what is liberty? You need to understand that there is a just use of government authority to help order our society. And I would advise them to stop looking for validation from people who hate them. Stop looking for validation from our enemies who actually want to separate us from our children. Be based, be savage, be unafraid to talk about these uncomfortable cultural issues because otherwise, when once these cultural institutions are completely subverted, 
That's just a step in the process for these Marxists to then try to topple our economic system and eventually our government system. So if we allow them to have the cultural institutions, then we're done. Well, on that note, the book is Hide Your Children, Exposing the Marxists Behind the Attack on America's Kids. It is just out. This week from Regnery, I can tell you I've already thumbed my way through a good bit of it, and it is just an absolute delightful read. Liz Wheeler, you are the author. Congratulations again on the highly successful launch of this book, and thank you so much for stopping by to talk about it. Thank you so much, my friend. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Josh Hammer Show. It's ah! Hammer Time. Go! Disney CEO says company will, quote, quiet up the noise in culture wars, according to analyst notes. So the CEO of the Walt Disney Company, Bob Iger, who came out of quasi-retirement amidst the Walt Disney Company's struggles over the past year and a half against the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. Well, Bob Iger told investors that his company will, quote, quiet up the noise in the culture war. Let me translate that for you. It means they're going to stand down. It means that they are going to stop instructing. Again, if we're taking Bob Iger at his word, I'm not sure why he would say this unless he was trying to salvage the stock price. I mean, all this will, will play out in real time. We need to be vigilant as far as following this. But if he means what he says, which admittedly is a caveat, then he is going to tell his company to stop trying to in- incorporate into all of their lines of product an extraordinarily destructive woke ideology that we have seen time and time again. This has been one of the marquee battles in U.S. politics over the past year and a half, going back to March or April of 2022. Ron DeSantis and Florida Republicans try to pass their parental rights and education law. The Walt Disney Company gets up and says, no. Translation, the Walt Disney Company gets up and says, no, we actually do support the quote-unquote right, the quote-unquote liberty. To go back to our conversation with Liz Wheeler, they said they support the liberty of kindergarten through third grade teachers to talk about sex, to talk about transgenderism, gay sex, all of that stuff with little kids as young as five and six years old. That is the so-called liberty, speaking of licentiousness and all of our conversation with Liz, that is the quote-unquote liberty that the Walt Disney Company came out in favor of. Well, they've taken it really hard. They have taken it really hard over the past year and a half. Their stock price has been absolutely crushed. Sports viewers are fleeing all the time. Their sports subsidiary, ESPN, yours truly certainly being among them. And finally, it seems like the CEO of this company has had enough. They are going to quiet the noise in the culture war. This story, of course, should be interpreted along with a similar line of recent stories. We've seen the absolute tumult of the Anheuser-Busch stock price in the aftermath of the Dylan Mulvaney Bud Light fiasco. Target has also seen its share price take a, a, a huge nosedive, at least over the summer months after conservative consumers rebelled en masse against their quote-unquote tuck-friendly business line. So, you know, it wasn't always obvious whether the the motto, if you go woke, you go broke, it wasn't always obvious whether that was true. Certainly, if Bob Iger and the Walt Disney Company are begging for mercy after being whacked for the past year and a half then certainly it seems like it is increasingly true. That is a very, very good thing for our culture. 
Republican Senator Tom Cotton defends Democrat Senator Bob Menendez. So this is a wild story. So Bob Menendez has been indicted. If you think that this is what Yogi Berra would have called deja vu all over again, then you are not wrong. It is exactly that. This is not the first time that Bob Menendez of a very corrupt state, historically New Jersey, has been indicted on bribery, corruption charges. The evidence here appears to be quite damning. Literal bars of gold implicating the Egyptian government. Very, very, very bizarre stuff. Recall also that Bob Menendez is one of the most senior figures, is one of the absolute most senior figures when it comes to foreign relations and foreign affairs in the United States Senate. He is a very prominent Democrat on that committee. He is considered a leader in the Democratic Party when it comes to foreign policy, more generally speaking. You've started to see many other New Jersey Democrats cry up against this. He has already attracted a major challenger if he chooses to run for election, which it's, it seems like he probably is. And we have many other Democrats who are getting up there and calling for him to resign as well, not unanimously, but many others. So, With respect to Tom Cotton, who I think very highly of, I'm not entirely sure what he is doing here. Certainly, if the shoes were flipped on the other side and a Republican senator was caught in such a terrible circumstance as this, don't think for a damn second that they would show the other side even a modicum of mercy. Tom Cotton, certainly, who called in 2020 famously to show no quarter for people riding in the streets in the Black Lives Matter Antifa riots. He really should know better. Again, I'm a fan of Tom Cotton. Do not agree with him here for sure. California becomes the first state to mandate gender-neutral bathrooms in schools by 2026. So although some cities and school districts across the country have added this, Governor Gavin Newsom signed a bill making California the first to require it in all schools statewide. I mean, really, does is this a surprise to anyone? I mean, California, of course, has been a leader of the woke brigade for a long time now. Unfortunately, California is is paying for it, is paying for it when it comes to citizens fleeing the state. They have lost more citizens than anywhere else. People are trying to get out of this woke cesspool, this crime-ridden, overtaxed, overregulated hellhole of socialist malfeasance. I mean, what Gavin Newsom has done to that state, what he has done to God's gift that is California, such a beautiful piece of paradise. Really, the Democratic Party of California has a lot to apologize for when it comes to what they've done to that beautiful state. Finally, Biden makes history by joining U.S. auto workers picket line. So Joe Biden is the first president here to stand on a picket line. He's trying basically to recover this working class Joe from Scranton persona. Unfortunately, it's not going to work for him. Joe Biden's whole presidency has been anti-working class, anti-middle class, cracking down on domestic energy, cracking down on all sorts of things that benefit the working class, the the EV mandates. He's trying to recover this working class Scranton thing. It ain't going to work for him.